what are these guys laughing about? Perhaps they can enlighten us about our life's mission. How can each and every one of us identify and find out what our life's mission is? We'll study some Kabbalah today to understand the secrets. But first, we'll talk about these men, Menachem Begin, Jimmy Carter, and Anwar Sadat. This was in Camp David in Maryland in the late 1970s, discussing the first peace treaty that Israel made with one of its Arab neighbors between Israel and Egypt. Well, what has this got to do with our life's mission? Well, at the time, journalists wanted to cover some of the talks which apparently took place in Egypt, and they had a question for the rabbi. Why would the rabbi be asked if they can go to Egypt? What can be wrong with touring Egypt, visiting the pyramids, or anywhere else in Egypt? There's some real ancient synagogues in Egypt that remain until today. Maimonides lived in Egypt, but this Torah seems to tell us that going back to Egypt can be problematic. But how does this got to do with our life's mission. Join me for a 60-minute journey exploring a piece of Kabbalah, enlightening us about our life's mission, fascinating discussion about stepping foot in the territory, the land of Egypt. It's Lunch and Learn, and this is Rabbi Heshi from Chabad of Seagate, and we will study Torah together as we usually do on Tuesdays at 12.15. We take a journey exploring traditional sources from Torah, from Talmud, and some Kabbalah. And after 60 minutes or so, hopefully we'll emerge with a better understanding of why we're here, what our individual particular life's mission is, and what does this got to do with Egypt. So we have a source sheet to follow along, either in your email inbox, you'll find it, or on this post, there should be a link to today's source sheet as we dive right in to begin this fascinating topic. I've never been to Egypt, but we had a Jew here in our shul in, in Seagate who has since passed, but his name was Yaakov and he came from Egypt. He grew up in Egypt. Many Jewish people lived in Egypt until recent history in the 1940s. There was about 100,000 Jews living in the country of Egypt. In 1948, about most of them, about 70,000 of them made Aliyah joining, moving over to the new states, the land of Israel. But till today, there is the synagogue there, an old synagogue called the Ben Ezra Synagogue. And we'll talk more about Jewish people in Egypt soon, but let's jump right in to our first section. Hello, Jody and Roy and Mark and everybody else watching this live as well as after it goes live and on our podcast. So here we go. We'll talk about one of the mitzvahs of the Torah regarding Egypt. We'll talk about the reasoning. We'll study some Kabbalah and bring this in a practical way inspiring us in our lives. Source number one, the Torah tells us, the way you have seen the Egyptians is only today. 
Let's just give a little background here. This verse, a quote from the book of Exodus from Shemos, the Jewish people are at the Sea of Reeds. Last week we discussed the story of the splitting of the sea. But the, before the sea splits, the Jewish people are very scared. Right behind them is Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, and they're stuck between this army and the sea. So Moses tells the frightened Jewish people this verse, the way you have seen the Egyptians is only today. You see them almighty and you see them coming after you. That's only today. But you shall no longer continue to see them for eternity. This verse constitutes a commandment, not just a promise. Simply understood, these words of Moses was a comfort, a promise to the Jewish people, don't be scared, you'll never see them again. They're going to drown, they're going to be wiped away in the sea. But Nachmanides says that it's actually a mitzvah, it's a commandment. And not just you won't see these specific Egyptians, you shall no longer continue to see them. It is forbidden, it is one of the 613 commandments of the Torah to return to the land of Egypt. You shall no longer see Egyptians, at least on their land. That is how he explains this particular verse. And even according to the other commentaries like Rashi, who say that this verse is more of a promise, not a commandment, but they agree that there is such a commandment based off other verses in the Torah. Source number two, in the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book, where the Torah is referring, talking about a Jewish king, and the laws of the king. And the law is that a king may not have too many horses, like too many cars nowadays. Source to why? So that he will not bring the people back to Egypt. This is they're living in Israel, the Jewish kingdom, there's a Jewish government. And the Torah says that the Jewish king, like King David, King Saul, King Solomon, shall not have too many horses because that might lead him to bring the people back to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. For the Lord said, you shall not return that way anymore. This is not just a promise. This is a commandment. He cannot have too many horses. As Rashi says, horses were exported from Egypt. Egypt was a place where you get good horses. And we see later King Solomon did indeed purchase uh, some horses from Egypt. Says the Torah that God said you shall not return that way anymore. There is a commandment not to return to Egypt. And if twice is not enough, we have a third time in source number three in the what's called the portion of the tochacha, the portion of the rebuke, when Moses is telling the Jewish people that if they sin, not such good things will come upon them. One of those verses is, if you do not obey the Lord, the Lord will bring you back to Egypt and ships through the way about which I had said to you, you will never see it again. In three places, the Lord exhorted Israel not to return to Egypt. Three times they returned, three times, and three times they fell. So before we get to that detail about when they did return, the Torah is quite clear and repeats it three times not to return to Egypt. So we can go anywhere. You can go anywhere. You can live anywhere. You can visit anywhere. But here the Torah seems to say, do not return to Egypt. And to the extent that a king shouldn't have too many horses because maybe that will lead him to bring the people back to Egypt. The Jewish people spent 210 years in Egypt. That was enough. Do not return. Do not eat pork. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not return to Egypt. 
which is quite perplexing. What in the world is wrong with the land of Egypt? There are plenty of places where Jewish people suffered in Jewish history, yet there's no law outlying the return to those countries. Why is Egypt singled out? Now, the Midrash tells us, we just learned, that three times the Torah says do not return, three times they did return, despite the commandment, despite the prohibition, and three times, each of those three times that they returned, they eventually fell, they eventually did not last there. Just going to say a blessing here. Let's examine those three times that Jewish people did return to Egypt. Source number four refers to hundreds of years after the Jewish people are settled into the land of Israel. <clears throat> During this first temple era, first temple built by King Solomon, at one point, the Assyrian king, Sancherev, mighty king, came and he eventually exiled the ten tribes living in the north of Israel leaving only the remaining tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south of Israel near Jerusalem. When he came up, at that time the Jewish king over northern Israel was a man named Hosea. He was called Melech Israel, the king of Israel, while the other king was called the king of Judah. And he sought help from the Egyptians to help him against the invading king, Sancherev, king of Assyria. And that was in direct violation of the instruction of the Jewish prophet Isaiah, Yeshayahu. Source number 5, and Yeshayahu says, Isaiah 31, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for aid, and God they do not seek. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirits. All of them shall perish. Those that went down to Egypt and they dealt with the Egyptians and I guess some of them actually lived in Egypt sort of to escape the Assyrians. The prophet was not happy with that. God was not happy. They had violated the commandment not to return to Egypt. And eventually they perished there. Source number five, the second incident later in history when the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians who came onto the scene after the Assyrians, the remnants of the people living in Israel were frightened. And they had a plot to and plan to resettle in Egypt. And the prophet at that time, Jeremiah, Yermio, also instructed them not to go there. They did not heed his Calling, source 5, he says, Hearken to the word of God, O remnant of Judah, the ones that were left there, that were not exiled by, by the Syrians, and not exiled later by the Babylonians, the remnants of Judah. So said the Lord, if you direct your faces to come to Egypt, and you come to dwell there, the sword that you fear will overtake you there. You're afraid of the sword here in Israel, that it will overtake you there. And indeed, they were wiped out there in Egypt. And finally, number three, during the second temple era, many Jewish people lived in Egypt, especially in the city of Alexandria, which is included in Egypt. And the Talmud describes the vast 
wealthy, prestigious community that lived in Alexandria. To the point, source 6, one who did not see the great synagogue of Alexandria of Egypt, never saw the glory of Israel. This was built during the times of the Greeks, and it was named Alexandria and this great synagogue after Alexander the Great, who conquered the region and later the Ptolemy, Ptolemy uh, Greeks lived and ruled in Egypt. And it was such a magnificent synagogue that if one did not see the synagogue, one had never seen the glory of Israel. But yet, all of them were killed by Alexander the Great since they established a residence in Egypt. Since they established a residence in Egypt. What's the big deal? Now, there is discussion in the commentaries. Okay, even if someone violates and transgresses one of the prohibitions of the Torah, it doesn't mean that they deserve to die. So why were they all killed out, you know, just for that? And there's discussion. Perhaps the prophets had clearly told them not to do so, and they transgress his direct command. But without getting into all of that, those details, we see clearly that going back to Egypt is not preferable is not something for Jewish people to do. We stay away from that country. At least that's what seems to be apparent from the Torah. It's one of the commandments and Jewish history proves to us that there's just no mazel for us in Egypt. And finally, brought down in Jewish law, not just in Talmud, brought down in Maimonides, Moses, Maimonides, the Rambam, Source 7, in his Code of Jewish Law, it is permitted to dwell anywhere in the entire world with the exception of the land of Egypt. This was written less than a thousand years ago. So this is way after these stories took place and seems to be relevant till today that it is permitted to dwell anywhere. You can live in Sige, you can live in Honolulu, or anywhere else you choose besides Egypt. Its territory includes, he maps it out, and includes a square from the Mediterranean Sea until Alexandria is included. He gives all the measurements, exactly the location of this country. And the question is, why is Egypt such a black spot on the map for Jewish people? There is no prohibition to return to Spain, to Toledo, to Berlin, in Germany, after all the atrocities that took place to the Jewish people, perhaps many times over what happened to the Jews in, in Egypt. Yet Egypt is singled out. And the question is strengthened by, if indeed there is such a prohibition, we do find in Jewish history, in more recent Jewish history, that many pious Jewish people, rabbis, great scholars and leaders, did reside and live in Egypt. Like Maimonides himself. He himself, and excuse me if I'm not mistaken, he actually wrote this code of law while he was in Egypt, or he definitely concluded it there. He's living in Egypt, and he writes that it is forbidden to settle in Egypt. How does that make sense? And he was a great man, Maimonides. Till today, his books are studied and brought as Jewish law. He resided in Egypt from, I believe, age 30 till, till his passing, 69. Well, he did request to be buried in Israel, but he lived in, in, in Old Cairo, in Fustat as well as many other Jewish leaders, the great Arizal, the Kabbalist, that will soon study his insight, he lived in Egypt. And he studied from the Ridvaz of David ben Zimra. And many other great luminaries and Jewish pious scholars lived in Egypt. How did they do so in contrast with this law of the Torah not to settle in Egypt? Hang on as we describe this, explore this, and this will shed some light on our life's mission 
why we're here and why we're in this specific place that we find ourselves. So, an interesting piece of history in the Cairo old synagogue called the Ben Ezra Synagogue, which perhaps is the oldest synagogue around till today, although it was many times re... um, what's the word? uh, Fixed up and... But the, the core of the synagogue is very old. It's called the Ben Ezra. Perhaps it was built by Ezra about 2,000 years ago, 2,400 years ago. And at some time, I believe 100 or post, more than 100 plus years ago, the, this synagogue had a Shemus, a Geniza, a place where old manuscripts, holy manuscripts, and all kinds of documents written in Hebrew were placed in this, in this um, kind of room where they would dump all old stuff. And for some reason, it was never organized, never cleaned out. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, it just piled up and piled up. And about a hundred or so years ago, maybe a little more, some antique dealers came and they started schlepping out some stuff. And eventually it was all emptied and brought to uh, Cambridge University. There was a professor, Solomon Schechter, who... As we see in this amazing picture right here, there he is sitting and poring over all of these manuscripts and handwritings of Maimonides from almost a thousand years ago. Marriage documents, contracts, all kinds of fascinating uh, manuscripts, very important to uh, Jewish literature. And that was found in the old synagogue of Egypt. And... I believe you can probably see some of them on display somewhere, but that happened from Egypt. So there is definitely Jewish people living in Egypt for hundreds of years. So what's going on? Let's move on to our second section here. Perhaps some rationale for this mitzvah. Source number eight. The commentaries do not leave us in the dark. Jewish people have been studying the Torah for 3,335 years almost. There's got to be a lot of Jews studying and writing their commentaries. Source number eight. This is from the Torah. Like the practice of the land of Egypt, in which you dwelled, you shall not do. This is from the book of Leviticus, talking about the laws of marriage, the sanctity and purity of marriage, who we can marry, who we shall not marry, and laws of incest, immoral um, relationships, and it says, like the practice of the land of Egypt, in which you dwelled, you shall not do. Referencing Egypt with immoral kind of ways. The deeds of the Egyptians were more corrupt than the other nations, says the Midrash. At that time, the Egyptians were very corrupt. They were the lowest of the low of society. So, the Jewish people lived amongst them for 210 years. Says the Torah, do not learn from their ways. Now you're going into Israel. Don't follow the ways of the Egyptians. Source number 9. When it came to the plague of the killing of the firstborn, the last, the tenth of the ten plagues that God brought upon the Egyptian people before the exodus. The firstborn was going to die. But in fact, more than one individual in every family died. 
And that was somewhat of a surprise to the fathers, at least. Source number nine, they had thought that if one had four or five sons, only the firstborn would die, as they were told by Moses. Not realizing that their wives were profligate, they were very reckless, and that they could have borne the firstborn of different men. So they may have had one wife at home, but their children were not necessarily all of theirs. They were born from different men, and perhaps to each man this was the firstborn. So there were many firstborns. So the Egyptians were somewhat immoral during those times. And this goes back to many stories of the Torah. Before the 10th plague, we have the story of Abraham and Sarah. We, st- we studied about Sarah a couple of months ago, I believe. Sarah was taken, when she and her husband Avram came to Egypt, she was taken forcefully to the palace, to, to Pharaoh. A beautiful woman appears. No questions asked. She's taken to the palace. And only miraculously is she saved. And Pharaoh sends her home and says, Just leave Egypt. Don't stay around here. Beautiful woman, this is not the place for you. The people of Egypt are immoral, says Pharaoh to Abraham. Take, kach ishtecha, take your wife and lech, leave this country. And therefore, says the commentary, says, Nachmanides, Rabbeinu Nachman, source 10, the eternal desire that the Israelites do not learn from their deeds. And so he ordered that he, we are not to settle there. If we would settle there, we would be neighbors with such kind of people. Says the Torah, pick your neighbors, pick good neighbors, do not return to Egypt. Now this only applied when they were particularly immoral. Says the Urayim that this law, here we have our first answer, this law does not apply if the Egyptians are not that immoral. Now, I've never met an Egyptian today, but probably and hopefully they're not as they was back in the day, you know, 3,000 years ago when this law was told. And therefore, the Torah's rationale is that because at the time the Egyptians were extremely immoral, and that's not what's befitting for Jewish people, so do not return there. That's one approach. Another approach is that it is independent of the behavior of the Egyptian people. The land of Egypt is forbidden to return to. And that applies even today. How did Jews uh, settle there at some point? Source number 11. In the words of Rabbeinu Bachia, it would be inconceivable that so many scholars made their home in Egypt after the destruction of the temple. Even if individual Jews had ignored this prohibition, the sages would have spoken out and we would have had records of their protests, which we do not have. The only prohibition is to return directly from Israel. So the Rabbeinu Bachia says, and he also lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago, he tells us that the prohibition is to return from Israel to Egypt, not just to settle in Egypt. That's, that wouldn't be a problem. The problem would be here, God takes the J- Jewish people out of Egypt en route going to Israel. So if you reverse that trip and you reverse and you go from Israel back to Egypt, here God per- 
performed, performed all these miracles to take the Jews out of Egypt to bring them to the Holy Land. And the Jews did live in Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. Then this law applied, and perhaps it would apply today, going from Israel directly in the same route, returning to Egypt. But coming there from Spain, coming there from any other direction, that would be permitted, according to Rabbeinu Bachya. A third approach, before we get to the final approach from the Kabbalah, which will enlighten us about our life's mission, is a story in the Talmud. There was a man named Nicanor. Nicanor lived during the Temple Era and Second Temple Era, and he traveled from Israel to Egypt. And he had beautiful doors crafted designed beautifully for the Holy Temple, for the Beis HaMikdash in Jerusalem. Huge doors covered in um, copper or made of copper. And the Talmud tells us the story that he took it over a ship. These doors were so heavy, he would not be able to go on a ca- camel or some other way. He had to take a ship from Egypt to Israel and while they're traveling and sea boating through the Mediterranean Sea, there is this storm that breaks out and they have no choice but to throw one of the doors overboard. And when that doesn't help and they want to throw over the second door, Nicanor says, no, no, no. It's either this door stays here or I'm going overboard together with this door. And at that moment, when he demonstrated his deep desire to donate this door to the Holy Temple, the storm subsided, and when they came to the shores of Israel, miraculously, the other door surfaced, I guess it was over under the boat, or somehow miraculously it surfaced, and these doors were installed at the main entrance to the synagogue, and they were called the Gates of Nicanor. They were plated copper, although all other doors were later plated with gold. These doors, because a miracle occurred with them, they were left shining with copper. So this story tells us, source number 12, Nicanor went to bring copper doors for the eastern gate of the temple from Alexandria, and a storm arose in the sea and threatened to drown him. Miracles were performed to his doors. Now, he went from Israel to Egypt. Direct route. How is this story brought in the Talmud and he is praised for returning to Egypt? How did he step foot in Egypt when the Torah explicitly tells us do not return? And they left his doors. A miracle took place. How does that make sense? It's forbidden. Rather, this story teaches us that sometimes even directly from Israel would be permitted. How is that? Source number 12, 13. The prohibition consists of settling there. It is permitted to return for the purpose of trade and commerce. Lashes are not given for the violation of this prohibition because at the time one enters, there is no prohibition. Should he decide to settle there, there is no deed involved. So, in other words... It is permitted to return. You're allowed to step foot in Israel. You're allowed 
the journalist is allowed to visit Egypt to cover the peace talks. And you're allowed to visit the pyramids or the old synagogue or Maimonides' home or whatever else you want to visit in, in Egypt. And I hear that Egyptians are quite friendly to tourists. However, to settle there, you want to live there, that is a problem. Now, even those that did end up settling there, like Maimonides, and like others that settled there for many years, not just for trade and commerce, but when they actually entered Egypt, and here's a halachic, um, excuse me, uh, terminology. When they actually entered Egypt, they entered with permission. They were allowed to enter. Perhaps they had in mind just to check it out, to do some business, to, back, to return to Israel, and even if they ended up settling, but there's no deed. You didn't enter. You, when you entered, it was permitted. The staying is what's forbidden. But you're not doing anything by staying. You're just not leaving. So that is a prohibition, but it's a minor prohibition. There's no lashes. You didn't do anything. And therefore, for various reasons, for difficulty, uh, Maimonides was a doctor. He was a physician of the sultan in Egypt. You know how you say Egyptian doctors? Chiropractors. He was in Cairo serving the Egyptian king, the sultan. So it was difficult for him to leave. Perhaps he, he uh, once somebody came there for business and had forced him to settle. So it's because the initial entry into Egypt is technically permitted, so therefore perhaps explains how they settled there. And in the words of the Ritvaz, Rabbi David, source 14, who also lived there, those who went to Egypt had originally gone with the intention of doing business. Our intention, he says about himself, is to return to Israel to live permanently. So we're here, you know, with unpacked suitcases. We're, we're not settling here, although we're here for an extended period, but our heart and our thoughts are to return to Israel as soon as it becomes possible and practical. And it is this that we rely on as we dwell in Egypt. So we've got three approaches, and there are others, why it would be permitted. One saying that it doesn't really apply today because Egyptians are not that immoral. Number two, it is specifically traveling from Israel to Egypt, returning on the route where God took us out from. And number three, if you enter even from Israel to Egypt, but it is not to settle there, it is just to visit for business, that would be permitted. But it does seem that after all is said and done, it is still forbidden to settle there. Maybe it won't be lashes and we can somehow explain why it's not so terrible, but it is definitely not preferable and it is not um, re- re- recommended to, st- to settle and set up shop. And definitely if one comes and says, here, I'm going from Israel to Egypt in order to settle there, that would be problematic. And the question still is, why? What's wrong with the territory of the ancient land of Egypt? And here we have a teaching of Kabbalah, a teaching of the great Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Loria, who was the student of the Ridvaz, Rabbi David, that we just mentioned, who he himself, the Arizal, as he is known, great Kabbalist, lived about 500 years ago, lived in Egypt. And he is the master of Kabbalah. He gives us an insight explaining 
why Egypt is singled out and why this can enlighten us about our personal life's mission. Let's turn the page to source number 15 in our third section here. Anybody has any questions or comments, feel free to put it in the comments and we'll get to it. If you visited Egypt, I would love to hear about it. But after our ancestors spent uh, 210 years in Egypt, coming to an end 3,335 years ago almost, they they then lived in Israel for 850 years, then exiled, then came back to Israel, and there's always been somewhat of a Jewish presence in Israel, especially in recent history, past 100 years. Plus, the land is now flourishing. But many Jews do not live in Israel. And if you don't live in Israel, you're still a Jew. And you're still a perfect Jew. Jews live all over the world now. There's a Chabad present in more than 100 countries. Lots of tourism and lots of Jews living all over the place. What's the divine purpose for that? Why don't we just live in our own country? Why don't all Jews go back to Israel? Why did God design it in such a way? This exile, we lived in Egypt, we lived in Babylonia, we lived in Spain. We're all over the place, the wandering Jew. Now we're in America too. At one point we were in Poland. Not so much anymore. At one point, most Jews lived in Russia. Not so much anymore. Why is that? Why are we always going from place to place? Source number 15. The Talmud tells us, God exiled Israel among the nations only so that converts would join them. Why did God exile Israel? Once they were exiled from Israel, once, twice, they were spread all over the place. To Africa, to Babylonia, to Iraq, to Spain, and all over. Why? So that converts would join them. Simply understood, converts means individuals, human beings who were not born to Jewish parents, and they would like to convert and join the Jewish people, which often would happen when Jewish people would build a community in different cities, different countries, locals would get inspired by the Jewish way of life and seek to become part of this community and actually convert. And we have some great Jewish leaders in our Jewish history which were converts or descendants of converts. Until today, this is true. Many people join the Jewish faith and the Jewish community, Jewish family. But there is a deeper meaning to these words, converts. The word for convert in Hebrew is gerim. Gerim literally means foreigners, those that were not at one point part of the community and now they became part of the community. Says the teachings of Kabbalah, the primary objective of exile is not to atone for sin, but rather to enable us to redeem the holy sparks that were scattered around the world and which became embedded in physical reality. These converts are not referring to human beings. They're referring to holy sparks, divine sparks that became embedded in foreign 
entities. This is a Kabbalistic idea, which we'll not dwell on too much today, the specifics about it and the background, but there is a concept of holy sparks, nitsotsos, holy sparks, sparks of godly energy, which were scattered around the world and embedded, lost, and covered up, concealed in different physical places, entities, food, ground, all kinds of physical matter. Those are called converts. Because you want to find these foreign sparks, once holy, but somehow embedded and lost to foreign, non-holy things. And by Jewish people being exiled among the nations, they come in contact with these scattered sparks and have an opportunity by wandering around from place to place to meet up with each of these sparks and return them, convert them back to their holy states by using them for something holy in the service of God. That is the primary objective of exile. Yes, there were sins. The Jewish people worshipped idols and they were had discord. That's why they were exiled. But that's not the primary objective. That was the secondary, maybe, objective. Primary objective was not to atone for sin, but to enable us to come in close contact with these holy sparks which were scattered around and to convert them. Source 16 this is not just a collective job for the Jewish people, and that's why we're here as a mission, on our mission. There are 600,000 root souls of the Jewish people. The Jewish people were counted when they left Egypt, 600,000 foot soldiers, sort of men from 20 to 60. And they were the root souls of the Jewish people. Each of them is related to the vitality of one part in 600,000 of the totality of the world. Which part depends on his soul or her soul for its elevation by, to God by virtue of partaking of this world for the service of God. Each root soul subdivides into 600,000 sparks. Here is a revolutionary Kabbalistic concept whereas the world is divided into 600,000 parts, 600,000 territories, 600,000 units. In Hebrew it's called a chilek, a chilek, a, a parcel, a portion. And these 600,000 plots territories were designed and connect, relate to one soul. The original 600,000 souls of the Jewish people. Each soul is associated, is related to one parcel of the world. Now, these, each root soul is subdivided into 600,000 sparks. And this 600,000th piece of the world is also subdivided into many, many small parts. Each spark of the original soul is matched with one small part of the world. Each person that lives 
our souls come down to this world on a mission and we each have a spark of a soul. And that spark is matched, is programmed and given a task to elevate their specific spark, the divine spark that is found embedded in the world in their portion of the world. Source 17. The footsteps of man are directed by God. Says the psalmist, says King David, where we end up, where our feet lead us, are directed by God. Divine providence leads us to our spark. If we redeem those sparks, we, these sparks, we redeem ourselves from our personal private exile as well. What does that mean, private exile? It elevates us. We fulfill our mission because that's what our soul is made for. Our soul is matched up with a spark found somewhere in this world and our mission is for us to elevate it. How do we elevate it? When we say a blessing. When we take a fruit and we eat that fruit and with that, we say a blessing, we bless God for the fruit and with the energy that we receive from that fruit, we go ahead and pray. We go ahead and study Torah. We light a Shabbos candle. We help someone in need from the energy we work and from the work we make money and that money we utilize for a good cause. We elevate that spark which may have been embedded and lost in that fruit in that ground which gave its nutrients to the fruit. In your house where you live, when you study Torah and you invite guests and you have a mezuzah and you do all the things that the Torah requires us to do, we elevate those sparks. God leads us to our spark, to our portion in the world, as it's called in Kabbalah, your your portion, your parcel in the world. You have your spark, your sub-spark of your soul, which is a sub-soul of the original 600,000 root souls. We each have our specific mission. And God leads us to our mission. Some people, their mission was in Poland. And they lived in Poland. Some people, their mission is in Africa. And therefore, they live in Morocco. Or some people, they live in Seagate. Or they live in Albany. Or wherever it is they live. Or not just live. They visit. They tour. Wherever your steps take you. Wherever God takes you. As the verse says, man... Steps are directed by God. You know, tzaddikim, holy people, they know where they need to go. We are led there. They know, I need to move to this house. I need to move now to this country. The previous rabbi, he lived in Russia, then he settled in Latvia, and then he settled in Poland, and then he said, now it's time to come to America. It's not just the war. He said before he came, you think it's just the war, the, the 1939 that came, and that's why I'm moving to America? Say there, Mesudar Yeshkan, there is a plan. I am supposed to now go to America. There are sparks for us to elevate over there. That's my life's mission, and that's the life's mission of the community that's moving there. It's all part of God's plan. The fact that Jewish people go from place to place is because there is a mission for us to accomplish in each place. We each individually have a spark that's waiting for us to be elevated by us living in that specific place or by us visiting, touring that specific place. It's not just our business that leads us to move to Timbuktu, to move to Boston or to move to Japan. It's all part of God's plan. 
There is somebody, there is something waiting to be inspired, waiting to be elevated, waiting to be helped by you going there. There's a mission. One time, the Jewish women, Chabad women, had a conference, a uh, weekend retreat. I believe it was in Detroit, Michigan, somewhere where somewhere where it snows a lot. And Sunday afternoon was time for the ladies to go back home. And a snowstorm, a blizzard, canceled all the flights. And they wrote to the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, saying, what should we do? We're stuck over here. And the Rebbe said, responded, there's no such word stuck in the Jewish lexicon. You're never stuck anywhere. Yes, there's a snowstorm. It's all part of God's plan. There must be a mission for you guys to accomplish over there. And indeed, they went around the airport finding Jewish women, other women, teaching them about the ways of Hashem, teaching them about Shabbos candles and so on. We're never stuck anywhere. We're there on a mission. Wherever we go, and especially the place where we settle down, our homes, the specific address, the city, the neighborhood, the place where we come in contact with, it is there that our spark lies. Source number 18. 40 days before an embryo is formed, a divine voice says. This is a teaching of the Talmud. I'm not making this up. 40 days before an embryo is formed. You know, I don't know exactly when that is, but way before this soul starts getting um, formed, there's a divine voice planning this out and says, the daughter of so-and-so is destined to marry so-and-so. Such and such a house is destined to be inhabited by so-and-so. And such and such field is destined to be farmed by so and so. It's all planned out. Yeah, we have still free choice, and that's a whole different discussion. But God plans who we're going to marry. It's really a match made in heaven. God plans what we're going to do as uh, work. We know which field we're going to farm. Are we going to be a doctor, or a lawyer, or teacher, or full time parent? As well as whose house? will go to who? Which house will go to who? Which house we're going to live in? Now, it makes sense, you know, who am I going to spend my life with? Who my spouse is going to be? That's a pretty important decision. I'm happy it was made up in heaven. What kind of job? That's also pretty important. What are you going to do with your life? But where are we going to live? I mean, who cares? Wherever I choose, I'll live wherever I want. I want to live in Florida, in the sunny states, I'll live there. If I want to live in Alaska, I'll live there. Or in Siberia. Like, why can't I just choose wherever I want to live? Whatever house seems nice to me. Tells us the Talmud, it's really not your decision. I mean, maybe it feels like it, but God already has everything predestined, has everything arranged. Why is that so important? Source 19, we don't merely go places. Rather, those places beckon us to them because we have a responsibility towards them. Our geographic location is an indicator of a mission waiting there for us to fulfill. 
And one more for this section, source number 20. When the Jewish people first entered the land of Israel, they were 12 tribes. It wasn't just, okay, the whole land of Israel is for the whole Jewish people. Go ahead and choose your lot. There were millions of Jewish people. There were plenty of families, tribes. There needed to be a system. What was the system implemented by God? There were lots. It was a raffle. Source 20, only through lot shall the land be be apportioned. Every tribe had their name written on a piece of paper and put in one box, the 12 tribes. Another, pe- another box had a piece of pa- pieces of paper with the 12 territories of the land of Israel. It was divided into territories. And each tribe picked out a... Picked, you know, each name was picked out and a corresponding piece of land was chosen. I mean... Since when do things happen by uh, lot? Did God make a lot within all the nations and chose out the Jewish people to give them the Torah? Did he put in a bunch of names and took out Abraham? I mean, since when do things go by lot? And yet, when the land of Israel was divided and given the territories to each tribe, it was by a lot. Why a lot? A lot is divine. It is not logical. It is not rational. It is God's plan. We don't know what to do. Let's make a raffle. Whoever wins, God. It's a you know a strike of luck. Whatever God decides. The specific piece of land, parcel of land, which is designated for you to elevate, for this tribe to elevate, is done by a raffle, by a lot. Because it is divinely ordained where you should live, where your spark, matched up with your soul, finds itself. Continuing in Source 20, each soul is paired with a particular parcel of land, a lot in life. The match is divinely ordained. And this knowledge that this is a match made in heaven fuels our confidence, commitment, and excitement in tackling our portion in life. It's not just random. When we have the knowledge that it's a match made in heaven, just as it is with our marriages. Yes, there is divorce, but generally we have the recognition that this is a match made in heaven and we do all it takes to make this work. This is what's destined for us. And so too goes with where we live, our mission, knowing that wherever we live, wherever we come in contact, wherever we visit, is part of our divine mission that fuels our confidence because God knows us. And if He gave us this place, He has confidence in us and gives us the ability to fulfill this mission, to be more committed to our mission, to be excited because that's what we're all about. That's why we're here, to tackle our individual unique portion in life. That's the idea. And now, let's go back to Egypt. Source number 21. Let's talk about Egypt. The story of Egypt, the story of the Jewish people being in Egypt, started way before the Jews even got there. It started with a conversation that God Almighty had with our forefather, 
First Jew, Abraham, Avraham Avinu. He was 70 years old. God made a covenant with him. He was the first to recognize the true creator of heaven and earth. And God promises him that his descendants will inherit the land of Israel. But first, they will be foreigners. They will be slaves in Egypt. This is what God informs him way before he even had a child. But God adds an important detail. Source 21, we read from the book of Genesis, the book of Bereshia, the third portion, chapter 15, they will enslave them in Egypt and oppress them. And afterwards, they will go forth with great possessions. How does that sound to you? Avram has to hear that his descendants are going to suffer. They're going to be enslaved. Their boys will be tossed into the Nile. They will be slaughtered so Pharaoh can bathe in their blood when he is plagued with leprosy. They will be beaten. But then they will leave with great riches. What's Avram thinking? Don't enslave them and don't give them riches. But God has a different plan. Very important detail here. They will go out with great possessions. That's how the story began. And the same story is when God first meets Moses or Moses first encounters God at the burning bush. Hundreds of years later, you will not go empty-handed. He tries to get Moses on board to go to Pharaoh, to bring the ten plagues, to free the Jewish people. And he says, you will not go empty-handed. Each woman shall borrow from her neighbor and from the dweller in her house silver and gold objects and garments. And you shall empty out Egypt. Why is that so important? Jewish people are suffering in Egypt. Why is this even part of the conversation? The point is, just get them out of there. The sooner the better. No. But when God speaks to Moses, he says, for them to leave, they need to leave with great possessions. To empty out Egypt from all their gold and silver. And later, when it came time at the 10th plague, when there were time to leave, source 22, please, God says to Moses, please speak to the people and let them borrow silver and gold vessels. Israel preferred leaving immediately empty-handed rather than leaving later with great riches. Just let us get out of here. We had enough of this place. And yet, God emphasizes again and repeats again and again about the leaving Egypt with great riches, gold and silver. And indeed, they heeded God's call. Source 23, when there was the plague of darkness and the Egyptians were plagued for the Jews, it was light. And the plague of darkness was so thick that the Egyptians were confined to their seats, their beds. They couldn't move. It was so thick, the darkness. And the Jewish people made their way. Source 23, they searched the Egyptians' dwellings during the plague of darkness and saw their belongings. And when the Egyptians later said, we have nothing, the Israelite would say, I saw it in your house. Can I borrow some gold? Can I have some silver or some clothing? And thereby they made Egypt like a trap for the birds in which there is no grain and like an abyss without fish. Imagine a sea without any fish. They emptied out Egypt. There was no gold and silver left. A very integral part of the story of the Exodus and the enslavement seems to be that the Jewish people have to empty out Egypt. They requested from the Egyptians, 
gold and silver money to take along with them when they left Egypt. Why was that so important? Just get them out of this enslavement. Why was it so necessary <clears throat> to take along all the gold and silver? It seems like a key component. Here's the answer. Let's take a step back and understand God's plan, the way it was taught to us by Kabbalah. How did the Jews end up in Egypt? Joseph was sold by his brothers as a slave to Egypt. Joseph is thrown into prison, the pit, because he is wrongly accused of a story, of a crime. While in the pit, he interprets dreams for some of the king's advisors, king's ministers that were thrown into prison. And later, King Pharaoh has a dream of seven big cows, fat cows, seven skinny cows. And the minister tells the king, hey, when we were in prison, there was this Jewish lad. He interpreted our dreams correctly. How about he is brought out to interpret your dream? And indeed, Joseph is brought out. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams that there's going to be seven satiating years, seven abundant years, which will be followed by seven years of hunger. And therefore we need to prepare and store and plan for these seven years of hunger which will plague the entire region, not just Egypt. And Joseph is promoted second in command and he is the viceroy over Egypt for the next 80 years until his passing. And subsequently, Due to the hunger, the Jewish people come down to Egypt to be near Joseph, to be supported by him, and they end up settling there for 210 years. Why did this whole story happen? Seven years of hunger. You know why it happened? Source number 24. Yosef collected all the silver and gold in the world and brought it to Egypt. Egypt at that time, before this hunger, was not a superpower. It was a poor country. And yet... Through the years of hunger, through Joseph's genius, he collected all the silver and gold in the world because people were starving for seven years, for many years. And they all came to Egypt because Joseph had this whole system. He foresaw the hunger and was able to preserve the grain and feed the people who had to pay for it. Egypt became exceedingly wealthy, gathered all the gold and silver, their liberation depended on their success in extracting the wealth of Egypt. This wealth of Egypt contained so many holy divine sparks. And the whole intent of the exile of the Jewish people to Egypt. Why did God tell Abraham that their, his descendants will end up in Egypt? What did they do wrong? They were there on a mission. They were on a mission to elevate these holy sparks which became embedded and trapped in Egypt. And so many sparks made their way to Egypt because so much gold and silver, hard-earned money from people around the world ended up in Egypt through the hunger years by them purchasing grain from Joseph. There was this massive treasure there. And the Jewish people had to get their hands on it to elevate it fulfilling their mission. Source number 25. The sparks had become trapped within the depraved materialistic civilization of Egypt. 
can imagine, we said before, Egypt was, a, was not a very moral place. Egyptians didn't do a very good job at the time of elevating those sparks. By serving the Egyptians and therefore earning as remuneration the vast wealth of the storehouses of Egypt, the Jewish people were to liberate these sparks and restore them to the realm of holiness. And they deserved it. They worked hard for, for decades. It was a story later in history when the Egyptians' representative demanded that the Jewish people give back all the gold and silver that they borrowed, quote-unquote, from their Egyptian neighbors, which was a massive wealth. Until there was one Jew, Giviha, Ben Pesisa, who responded and said, hey, give us payment for the work of 210 years that we lived there, well, m- m- many of those years were works, years of enslavement for thousands and hundreds of thousands of Jewish people. Give us payment. And they made a calculation. They realized it's not going to add up. If anything, they, they didn't need to pay the Jews back for all that hard work. So they left. They were embarrassed and shamefully escaped. So we deserve this gold and silver for all their hard work. And by it coming into Jewish possession and using this gold and silver later to build a tabernacle, to build a menorah of gold, and to use it for a good cause, to serve God, to use it for mitzvahs, to make the filling out of the cows that they bought with the money, and all of the laws of the Torah that they use this stuff for, elevating it, bringing these sparks back to God, to its holy realm, that was the primary objective of the Egyptian exile and all subsequent exiles and wherever we find ourselves today. And therefore, God told Abraham, God told Moses, and says, please, to Moses, just tell the Jewish people to do it because that's the whole point of all of this. If they don't get the wealth with them, then, then they can't leave because that's the whole point. They need to work, they need to earn it, and they need to take it along with them. And elevate these sparks. That's why they're there. Source 26 says that Arizal says the Kabbalah. Once Egypt was emptied of all the divine sparks that had been embedded there. There was no longer any reason for Jewish people to live there. When we were liberated from other exiles, we did not empty these lands of divine sparks. Although we accomplished a lot. But there were still some sparks left there. And therefore we often had to return to continue the task. We had to go back to Germany and there are many synagogues functioning and flourishing in Germany and in Spain and in other places that we were exiled because we didn't finish the task. Egypt is the only place on the map where Jewish people back in the day 3,000 years ago They were root souls. They accomplished a lot. And there was so much wealth over there accumulated due to the hunger years that Joseph accumulated. And they took it along with them. They emptied. The Torah testifies. They emptied Egypt, not just from the gold and silver, but from all of the sparks, the divine sparks lost in Egypt. They were all emptied. So there's nothing for a Jew to do there. It is forbidden to settle there because what should they announce in heaven 40 days before you were born? Your soul is mashed up with your parcel in Egypt. There's no sparks left over there. The mission was accomplished. And whatever we, wherever we go, there is a mission for us. 
where we settle, especially there's a mission for us, waiting for us to accomplish, to elevate. Egypt's job, Egypt's part of the world was done with. It is elevated. It was all the sparks were taken out and elevated. So we have no business settling there. Says the Torah, it would be a waste. It would be useless living there. Now, source 27, although the sparks from Egypt itself were all elevated, objects continue to be brought into the country from elsewhere through trade, together with their corresponding spiritual content. And therefore, for trade, for commerce, then there is, there is reason for a Jew to be there for import, for export, so that he can come in contact with the sparks that are in this in those objects. But generally, as a rule, the Torah says it would be forbidden to settle there because it would be useless. Wherever a Jew settles, there's a reason. There's something for him or her to accomplish. So when we have this knowledge, we can be more excited about the place where we live. And even if for whatever reason we move on somewhere else, we're not limited to live in one specific spot. Life takes us from place to place. There's a mission in each place. To be cognizant of that mission. To put our mezuzah on our doors. To make our home a holy place. A place of peace. A place of love. A place of God. As they say, Where is God found? Wherever you let Him in. And there are many, many stories demonstrating uh, this theme. Teaching of Kabbalah. Wherever we go, there's a mission for our soul. And just to share one story, as there are many. It was a man named Yosef. He was a scholar, rabbi, lived about 200 years ago, and he was planning to become some great rabbi in a big city. And yet, when he visited his teacher, the Alter Rebbe, the first Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman, he instructed him interestingly, to become a wagon driver. He said, better to be a wagon driver than a rabbi. He was shocked. Him, a rabbi, should be a wagon driver? When he came home, he was so embarrassed. He didn't even tell his wife. He just went back to his books. But some years later, when he did get a formal invitation to assume the position of a rabbi in a nearby city, he remembered the words of his teacher and he said, it is now time to fulfill my mission of being a wagon driver, which was totally not up his alley. He came to the marketplace where the horse and buggies were and he asked someone to teach him how to be a wagon driver. They laughed him off and the whole town was laughing at the Rabbi Yosef who went crazy. He wants to be a wagon driver. He wants to deal with horses. Finally, someone had some Rachmanas, had some mercy on him and taught him how to connect the horse to the wagon, how to you know, deal with the horse. He wasn't very experienced. He got all muddy. Coming home, his wife was crying, tearing her clothes, tearing her hair out of her head. What has happened to you, Yosef? And, but when he shared with her the story, she had faith in the words of their tzaddik, of their Rebbe, and said, I will sell my jewelry. We will buy 
a horse and wagon and you will fulfill what the Rebbe has told you. Sure enough, he closed his books and he started to be a wagon driver, taking people from place to place, wandering, unbefitting his scholarly knowledge. After a couple of months, he came to a hotel where he stayed over the night. And the hotel manager tells Yosef, there is a, a man here, a Jew, who has left the faith, mingled with the non-Jewish people, and disassociated himself from the Jews, Jewish brethren, not very recognizable externally as a Jew, and he wants a ride tomorrow morning. Yosef replied, Sure, after I finish my prayers. When that Jew heard that, he began screaming, What prayers? What God? And was being very nasty. Well, Yosef went to his room for the night, and this other Jew went to his room. In the middle of the night, that Jew awakes, and he hears Yosef. He hears a voice crying. He peeks into the room and he sees Yosef sitting on the floor, praying, studying, crying, really soulful kind of experience. And his own soul wakes up and remembers his father, his grandfather, as he was brought up as a religious Jew. And he begins to have remorse, to have regret. In the morning, he sees Yosef wrapped in a talus in tefillin, praying the morning prayers with a sweet, sweet melody, as Yosef was indeed a very pious man. And this Jew became so inspired, he asked Yosef to lend him his talis and tefillin, and he himself prayed, and slowly Yosef helped him along, return to his former identity, to become a Baltashuva, a proud Jew, once again. When Yosef, came later to his teacher, his teacher's son, his own teacher had passed since, and told him the story. His son said, your mission is now accomplished. You can go back home and you will be the rabbi in Beshenkovitz, a great city. So for some time, the mission of his soul was to be a wagon driver, to inspire this one individual to come back to the ways of Torah. We don't know what God has in store for us. Perhaps it's something we haven't envisioned ourselves. But we're here to serve. We're here to do what God designed for our soul. We're here to elevate our portion in the world. Thank you for joining us for Lunch and Learn number 186. Join us next week for another inspiring, fascinating historic lesson feel free to share this post so others can benefit from it as well have a wonderful rest of your day and thank you for joining